Welcome to It Is What It Is. I'm Corbin. And I'm Anthony. And today we're going to be talking some more about narrative identity. So we uh, talked last week about Paul Ricoeur and the notion of identity as being shaped by the stories we tell ourselves as well as the stories that others tell about us. But instead of focusing in the general concept of narrative identity, we want to look at a particular uh, set of stories that we that are popular to tell. We see these in movies. We see this in novels. And now we're starting to see it in, in the way that we report the news and, and share things about real life and history. So we wanted to explore uh, the stories of redemption and contamination. So there's a psychologist, Dan McAdams, that's talked about these stories, redemption and contamination. He says, these are the two kinds of stories that we tend to tell about ourselves. So a redemption story is where you take something that is bad and you find some way to turn it into good. And contamination quite, quite obviously goes the other direction. It's the converse. You take something that's good or innocent or pure and then have it uh, devolve into something bad, negative, unworthy, etc. And he argues that these are the two kinds of stories that we tend to tell ourselves about ourselves and about our world. And we can think of them as in terms of optimism and pessimism, but it's not, they don't directly correlate. So, so the narratives are more complex and include a lot more information. But there's an interesting study. Uh, once you identify and, and do surveys to see what kind of stories people tell about themselves, you can actually test, uh, evaluate their moods and um, their empirical facts and conditions. So people who tend to tell contamination stories tend to be more depressed, unmotivated, uh, they struggle with greater mental illness and social isolation. Whereas people that tend to tell redemption stories are motivated, ambitious, uh, tend to uh, be productive and, and healthier mentally and physically. And so it's an interesting relationship between the stories we tell and actually what happens to us in, in the actual world. It also kind of gives you a cue as to like what you're attuned with, right? Like if you're telling more contamination stories, you're probably paying attention more to that side of thing in life. Think of the the coworker who comes to you to complain all the time about stuff. They probably are only noticing the bad things that are happening in and around themselves. I do want to uh, qualify. So I kind of set you up for a trap. <laughs> uh, the, the redemption and contamination stories do have these interesting psychological effects. And you would think that, okay, then we just need to start telling redemption stories because then we'll all be happier and healthier. Um, but there are costs to telling only redemption stories. Part of that is we minimize actual suffering. So we tend to want to put rosy glasses on and, and try to find the silver lining. And that works if you're in a position of, of power and uh, comfort where you can endure some actual suffering and see how things could be better and, and work your way towards it. But for those people that are, are suffering and powerless, you're basically minimizing their suffering and telling them it's not that bad. You know, the world's a good place. You're just being negative. And so you kind of foist the blame on the people that are suffering. Uh, and also, while it might be motivating to uh, be uh, to have this redemption kind of story like, yes, things can change. We can make it better. It can also be demotivating and thinking that everything's going to work out. There's you know nothing that we really need to change. So there's a certain kind of uh, motivation that comes from recognizing that there is a problem and, and being honest about those problems. So contamination can also give us a perspective on the world that we need. So 
I don't want to cast the light that only we only need one of these stories. These two stories work in tandem together and are important stories, but maybe we can figure out how to have a positive psychological outlook while recognizing a genuine realistic uh, criticism of the world around us. So before we go into uh, how to apply redemption, I just want to talk about the meaning of the word. A lot of our listeners may be familiar with it only in uh, religious context. And I want to be able to talk about this more generally, not just tethered to any particular school of religious thought or, or religious perspective. So to redeem something is to buy something back at a cost, maybe um, to restore something to its original status through paying some kind of price. And you could think of like if you owed a debt and you, your collateral was taken, some, some precious valuable that you had that you had as collateral, in order to get that back, you have to then pay the cost of the, of the debt. So you redeem your valuable object, your collateral, by paying it off. And so it restores you to the original status by paying some kind of expense. That transactional kind of understanding of redemption, which is the literal original uh, understanding meaning of the term, took on a religious context where in order to restore the divine plan or the divine purpose, uh, something had to happen. There was some kind of cost that had to be paid in order to bring everything back to its proper place. Uh, but I think we can take this in a larger you know, context so that it could be considered either religious or secular. And that's this idea of restoration. You know, how do we, what does it cost to make things right, to have things in the proper place and the proper relation? So I'd like to add to what you were just saying by uh, thinking about how redemption is, it's not about like one person's view of the situation, right? Like if we take a classic case of like, let's say I did something wrong to you. Like there's kind of like this aspect of, I have to acknowledge that one, I did something wrong in order for the redemption to start. Uh, and then I have to work towards this buyback, you know, buyback of your trust, of your friendship, of uh, the wrong that I had committed to you. Um, so there's like this path of atonement. Uh, you also have to acknowledge that the thing that I did was worthy of redemption. And so you have to kind of like either provide consent or you have to acknowledge, at the very least, you have to acknowledge that this is like some sort of act of redemption. To me, like this whole process acts as redemption. I bring this up because I asked my brother what it means to be redeemed. And he was talking about, um, you know, he said that he's sort of like a a very forgiving person. So if somebody did something wrong to him, he's likely to forgive them without really there being any redemption. But that to me is only one-sided, right? He might forgive them and maybe he gets over it. But if the other person feels that they've done some wrong to him, theirs might be a personal quest for them to to pay him back this favor, even if he doesn't acknowledge it. Uh, we talked last week about uh, personal narratives and how the people around you have this story to tell about you, you have the story to tell about you, and then there's like this third external factor. And this kind of, this narrative of, of redemption really, I think, plays into that concept where it's not just what I think about what I did wrong, but it's also about what you might think that I did wrong. Yeah, no, that's good. And I have a basketball example, I think, to discuss about this. So Jimmy Butler uh, was came into the league, not nobody really expected him to be 
a superstar or anything like that. He was just kind of a good role player. He played hard. And he developed a lot of uh, skill alongside Derrick Rose, but he's still kind of seen his second or third fiddle. And then um, Derrick Rose gets injured and Jimmy Butler had to step up. And he developed kind of this reputation as a really good two-way player, but he was known as a hard worker that made himself into a good player, not coming into the league with this like supernatural talent. But uh, Chicago was going through a rebuild and, and Jimmy Butler had some tension and friction there with the organization. And so uh, he ended up going to Minnesota playing for his former coach. People were talking about this could be a really good fit. He's working with a couple of other superstars in Wiggins and Towns. And instead, uh, we just heard story after story after story about friction between the players and Jimmy Butler's a troublemaker in practice and, and in the locker room. And then he leaves to go to Philadelphia. And for a week or two, it seemed like, all right, we finally found the right fit. Jimmy Butler hits a game winner. He makes an incredible game-saving uh, block and play. And he's working with a couple of other superstars, kind of willing to take a, a back seat, it seems like, to be the, the third fiddle against Simmons and Embiid, which is an interesting position for somebody who's been in the league so long and, and had so much success. But not very long after that, it was falling apart in Philadelphia also. And we kept hearing, like, Jimmy Butler's frustrated with the coaching. He's uh, not happy with his role and all of this. So D Jimmy Butler kind of developed a reputation as the self-made athlete who had a lot of respect and then kind of devolved into not a team player. He's trouble. He's poison for your organization. And so that was the contamination story, right? The narrative that something good got corrupted and, and devolved into something lesser. And so when Butler left the Sixers, though people mourned the loss of that talent, I think they were kind of thinking, this is a good thing for Philadelphia. We're going to now see Philadelphia achieve their, their promise. And Butler goes to the Heat, a young organization without any really established superstars. And instead, uh, the Heat are are doing great. They are now in the playoffs with a 3-0 lead over the season, the most winning team in the regular season, the Milwaukee Bucks, the presumptive title favorites. And it is pretty much seen as Jimmy Butler is, is the one who's being able to produce these kinds of results with this young team. And meanwhile, the Sixers got swept and their coach is fired. And so all of a sudden we're seeing Jimmy Butler's reputation redeemed and the Sixers contaminated. And I just wanted to tie into what you were saying. Jimmy Butler himself this whole time has said, I'm going to be Jimmy Butler. Like, I'm not doing anything wrong. This is who I am. You know what you're getting when you get me. Um, so it wasn't his self-narrative that was leading to these stories of redemption and contamination. It was the fan and media narrative. And, and yet it still really played into how we perceive Jimmy Butler. It's interesting to me, now that I'm saying this, that... The redemption arc seems to follow a contamination arc. It's like people want to end on a happy note, I feel like maybe generally, except for even though you just said this a little while ago, that pessimists tend to see the contamination side of things. Um, we all search for a happy ending, I think. I just want to point out uh, what's a little bit weird about applying narrative stories, uh, especially pre-structured ones, to reality is that when you're looking for the elements to pull the story together and to make it coherent. Um, you can kind of force details or 
reality might might not comply, right? Like we might be looking for a redemption story in Jonas, and what if it only ever turns into a tragedy? And um, that we might eventually tell that tragic story, but we might miss it as it's happening because we're we're so focused on trying to find the elements of redemption. You know, he goes to a team, he demonstrates that he's a team player and can still be a leader, and and that's what we're expecting out of him. But I just want to point out, like, when movies tell these stories, they can force the, the details to fit the story. And here we're kind of trying to fit reality into these narratives. We do this all the time. I think it's important to acknowledge like this isn't artificial. I mean, it is an artifice, but it isn't something that's arbitrary. It's the way that we organize and make sense of our world. But we just have to be careful that when we're trying to make sense of the world that we don't ignore the details that would help shape the story for us instead of us making reality conform to the what we expect it to look like. Yeah, I think that's a perfect point to make. And I think it's why we become disappointed with players, you know, who don't live up to their potential. And uh, I, this is kind of one of the reasons why I like Mad Men so much, because you think it's like a redemption story, but John Hamm's character, like, he always just kind of fails throughout Mad Men. And uh, then you realize that it's not really a redemption story. It's kind of a tragedy because he wants to do better and he just doesn't have the tools to be able to do so. So, you know, we started on this topic because first it was a surprise to you because you love a good redemption story. Uh, but then also I saw the movie A Silent Voice. <laughs> uh, and so if you haven't seen A Silent Voice, it's on Netflix. It's a, an animated Japanese anime film. And it's about a boy who bullies a deaf girl in, I think they're in elementary school. They might be in like fourth or fifth grade or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it cuts forward to a future time when he's been kind of excommunicated by basically his entire school. Everybody in the school, nobody talks to him. Even his close friends don't talk to him anymore. So he's kind of a loner and he forgot what it means to be a friend. So there's also this really heavy theme of friendship throughout. Um, and it gets to a point where he meets or seeks out the girl that he wronged. And he basically spends the entire rest of the movie trying to rebuild a relationship that probably didn't exist in the first place, but uh, it shouldn't have been so negative. And in such doing so, he... Uh, reestablishes relationships with his old friends, for better or for worse. Um, he entirely rebuilds this relationship with this poor deaf girl, and also he's able to reestablish a, a more a healthier relationship with his own family. And uh, you start to see similar attitudes reflected in his friends and their families too. Uh, this is, I guess, a spoiler alert. You know, a silent voice could have ended with the deaf woman committing suicide or you know failing to commit suicide and show you dying and there would have been it would have just been a tragedy of somebody trying to get redemption uh, but it, you know they are able to like make it so that he ends up in a coma and he wakes up from that coma and they're able to have one final moment where they acknowledge each other's faults and like uh, both acknowledge each other's redemption and then like tie that th tie that up in a way that pleases the the author essentially it's interesting. I wonder if you would think that his story was still a redemption story if he actually did die in the fall, uh, because he would have sacrificed to save her 
and my, that might be seen as paying the cost for ruining so much of her life. Um, is it necessary for his redemption that he gets to experience the redemption? Man, that's, that's a great question. And I think that's why I like this movie so much. Like from my perspective, the viewer, I don't think that he needs to have that acknowledgement. He's done a lot. He's gone above and beyond uh, the, to, to get her uh, to kind of view him as worthy of society. And you actually see it throughout the movie. He in the beginning, or when actually when he first, when you first see him in high school, there's X's on everybody's faces. So he, you can't tell if he's excommunicated, excommunicated himself or if everybody in school has excommunicated him and these are basically like untouchables. But you, you notice it when he starts reconnecting with people that it was more his perception than theirs. Like he wasn't making an effort anymore to connect with others. And as soon as he starts to, their exes start falling from their faces. Um, so there's sort of mini redemptions within just that component. Um, but then going back to your question, if he had died there, I don't think he could have redeemed himself because it turns out, at least to me, that part of the redemption was getting her to acknowledge that she's worth it, that she's worth mm -hmm. living. And I don't think she would have had that realization if they didn't have that final conversation after the fact. You know, she kind of comes to this realization that life is worth living and that she should try and live it to the most. And he didn't know that she had these suicidal thoughts, but she's he's also the reason why she has these suicidal thoughts. And uh, it was kind of like in that moment in the beginning that she started feeling that it was her fault that, you know, her deafness is a burden on everybody else and not necessarily that people aren't just trying to make an effort to include her. Yeah, it's really interesting. You mentioned in a previous podcast something we've talked about where everybody's the hero of their own story. And, and it's fascinating that in this movie, there's like four characters, at least maybe five or six that are going through a redemption story. And sometimes we get a glimpse of what it's like from their perspective, but a lot of the time we're focused on Shoya, so we might think of it as his story, his movie. But really, there's a bunch of different arcs, just like in real life. Everybody's going through their narrative, and sometimes these intersect, and sometimes they foil one another as well. So it's interesting to see that combination. You, you used the word atonement earlier, and I know that we were trying to talk about redemption in a larger uh, sense and a larger meaning, and not just in a particular religious perspective. But I did study some Christian theology as part of my undergraduate, and one of my professors would emphasize the play on words of atonement. So he would say, to um, to achieve atonement is to be is to have at one mint, and and what he meant by that is um, we have a broken relationship. We have broken relationships that that need to be restored. So the redemption allows unity. So redemption and atonement aren't the same thing. Redemption gets us to unity. And so being atoned with God and with others was this restoration of positive, loving relationships the way they're supposed to be. I think, again, you can take this in different religious perspectives. You can take this in a secular perspective to be redeemed, to pay the cost to overcome some kind of loss or contamination is to seek a positive unity with others. And I think that's an important goal uh, that that provides helps provide meaning and a sense of belonging and happiness for, for people. I think that um, that analysis is 
kind of why I, I came to this realization of it having to be a, a multi-party thing. Because even if you, like, let's say it's something as harmless as you breaking somebody's glass, right? Even if they don't really acknowledge it, and you, so you're you're off the hook in terms of redemption, like, you still know it happened, but there's still, like, a piece of the world that's missing, right? Your cup, your philosopher mug, let's just go there. Let's go there, Corbin. <laughs> <laughs> I break your philosopher mug behind your back, and you don't notice it. No. <laughs> yeah, but you can't have that reaction, because you don't even know it's broken. And like, so like one day you're just like looking for it and it's not there. So even if you're like, you can't be mad at me and you think it's all on you, like one, I still kind of understand that this thing is missing from your life. And two, there is still a tangible fallout where you feel that there's something missing from the world. And so Mm -hmm. like, I think that the only way to have true proper redemption and atonement in this case is if like I, you know, There's like two parts to it. There's like the physical act of restoring it. And then there's also the emotional aspect of me fessing up to this whole catastrophe in the first place. Yeah, no, that's good. So this could lead to a bunch of other topics about confession and forgiveness and and all that. But I think right now, if we leave it where it's at, people will have a lot more questions. And that's just the way it is. Pop and lock in the middle of this session just to (laughs) (laughs) keep the fans engaged.